This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. I mean, almost every time I speak in public, some individual come up to me, a businessman, an engineer, a scientist, a computer coder, and the individual will be just bawling, just tears pouring down. And they just told me how I couldn't share my Christian faith because I was living a contradictory life. And now I realize it all fits together. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Hugh Ross, who's an astronomer and the founder and president of Reasons to Believe Ministry, which you can find online at reasons.org. And his ministry is dedicated to integrating scientific fact with biblical faith. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, He's the author of many books. One of my favorite books he is the author of called uh, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. So Dr. Ross, it's such a thrill to have you on uh, the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I want to focus in a bit on your testimony because a long time ago when I was going through uh, a bit of doubt about what I believed and kind of deconstructing even in my faith, some of the questions that I had surrounded scientific issues and and a lot of the things that you talk about. And one of the things that really reached me and really touched me was getting to hear your testimony. So um, tell us a little bit about your childhood. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Uh, What what sort of led you uh, on your path toward following Jesus? Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. And uh, my parents really stressed moral upbringing. Uh, So they did definitely believe in the morality of the Bible. Eternal life part, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did go to church, but only for a few weeks. So I really wasn't raised in a Christian home. My uh, father got kicked out of the church, so uh, it was a very short experience. Um, But my discovery of the Christian faith basically came through my astronomy. Uh, I got very interested in astronomy when I was seven years old. I wanted to know why the stars were hot. My parents told me to go to the library. (laughs) I came back with five books on physics and astronomy. Uh, They thought, well, did you have to read all those? So, no, I found a lot of other interesting things, too. But from the age of seven onwards, I would basically focus on a sub-discipline of astronomy every year. And at age 16, I focused on cosmology. Uh, That's the science of the origin and history of the universe. 
And that's when I realized that of all the different models to explain the origin of the universe, the Big Bang model was fitting the observations. And I knew if it was Big Bang, the universe had to have a beginner. So it was at age 17, I began to search for the cosmic beginner. Wow. And I didn't really know where to look, but I thought a good place to look would be the writings of the great philosophers. You know, Immanuel Kant is considered the father of uh, modern cosmology. So I read his critique of pure reason and realized he doesn't really have the correct concepts of space and time. And uh, so then I looked at Rene Descartes and then I realized, you know, I got to look elsewhere. So I began to go through the world's holy books, began, began with Hinduism and the Hindu Vedas and realized uh, they spoke about a reincarnating universe. They had the wrong age for the universe. They actually give a very explicit date, uh, 4.32 billion years, and I knew that was incorrect. Their measure for the entropy of the universe was off by 100 million times. And so then I looked at the Buddhist commentaries, discovered that they were basically saying the same thing about cosmology as the Hindus. I looked at the Quran. Uh, I looked at the Baha'i writings. And uh, after about a year, I finally picked up uh, a Bible. And I did get to see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two businessmen that came into our public school and put two boxes on our teacher's desk. They didn't say a single word, uh, but in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. Mm -hmm. So I took a Gideon Bible home. It stayed untouched on my bookshelf for six years. But at age 17, I pulled that Gideon Bible off the shelf and began to go through it and immediately realized this book was unlike any other holy book. Uh, it was very specific about geography, history, and science. It was the only holy book I picked up that invited objective testing and actually showed me step-by-step step how to put everything to the test. I mean, I was taught the scientific method when I was in grade one. We got it in grade two. We got it all 12 years. That's kind of the way the Canadian education system was at that time. So when I picked up the Bible, I immediately recognized the scientific method in the creation text. Oh. And so uh, using those uh, testing methods, I spent 18 months studying the Bible, an hour a day or more, basically did it between midnight and two in the morning in total secrecy. I didn't want my family knowing what I was doing or anyone else. But after 18 months, realized, you know, there's a lot in this book I still don't understand, but I've not been able to find a single provable error or contradiction. Where when I looked at the other holy books, I was finding dozens and hundreds, but not a single one. And it was the only holy book I picked up that had predictive power, actually accurately predicting future scientific discoveries and future historical events in human history. And I said, the only explanation is, this book must be inspired by the one that created the universe. So it was at age 19, at about 1.06 in the morning, one August night, I signed my name in the back of that Gideon Bible, committing my life to Jesus Christ. 
That is, that's such an astounding story to me because I'm not a scientist. I don't come from any kind of scientific background. And so often we just hear so many claims about how the Bible is not scientific, how it gets so many things wrong here or there. And then here's someone such as yourself who essentially you're coming to the conclusions of the cosmological argument as a teenager just by reading physics books and books on cosmology and astronomy which is so fascinating um, just discovering that if the universe had a beginning it has to have a beginner and then going on that quest um, so you you said you searched through Buddhism and you you looked at some other uh, some philosophers. Uh, you mentioned that you saw the scientific method in the Bible, and that and I've heard you even say that that's actually where we get the scientific method. Can you expound on that a little bit? Where did you see that, and how did, how did that really apply to your journey of of discovering faith? Well, I saw it right on the very first page. I mean, it pops right out of Genesis chapter one. You know, step one of the scientific method do not interpret until you establish the frame of reference or the point of view. Step two, do not interpret until you establish the starting conditions. And what you see in Genesis 1-2, before you get into the six days of creation, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. That gives you the frame of reference from which to interpret the six days of creation. And it gives you four starting conditions. Water covers the whole surface of the earth. It's dark over the whole surface of the waters. And the earth is empty of life and unfit for life. And then step three of that biblical or that scientific method is simply look at what happens in the experiments or the observations and know what happens when, where, and in what order. And you see that in the description of the six days. And then step four, establish the final conditions and note how they're different from the starting conditions. Step five, now that you've done those first four steps, you can come up with a tentative interpretation of what you think you're seeing. And you want to test that tentative interpretation with other experiments, observations, or in the case of the Bible, other creation-relevant biblical texts. That's something else that struck me. When I compared the Bible with other holy books, the other holy books might have one, two uh, accounts of creation. Uh, what you see in the Bible is over two dozen lengthy texts that deal with the subject of creation. And what struck me is when I read on in the Bible, I found that Psalm 104, Proverbs 8, and Job 37, 38, and 39 also take the reader through the content of the six creation days. They're not presented chronologically, but the content is there. And that gave me an opportunity uh, to fine-tune my interpretation of Genesis 1. I mean, to give you an example, it shows you in Job 38 why it's dark on the surface of the waters. Because it says God had blanketed the seas with clouds that kept the seas dark. So there you got an explicit statement. The reason why it was dark on the surface of the waters was not because there was no sun, moon, and stars. It's because the early atmosphere of the earth would not let visible light through. Now, I must admit, as a 17-year-old, I had an advantage. From my background in astronomy, I knew that the primordial earth had an atmosphere 200 times thicker than it has today. 
and an atmosphere that thick will not let any visible light through. If you want an analogy, Venus is an atmosphere 90 times thicker than the Earth. The only visible light that gets through is at the very far red of the spectrum. All the other colors are blocked out. Wow. Well, that's something I actually learned from you because growing up in church, I grew up in a Christian family going to church all the time. And I don't think anyone ever specifically said this to me, but the idea that I caught was that we get our creation just from Genesis. That's it. You know, that's that's the only place in the Bible that really deals with creation or tells us information about creation. But I was so uh, just delighted to discover Psalm 104 and some of the texts in Job, which I want to get to a little bit more about Job in a bit, because that is so intriguing to me. But I want you to tell my my listeners and my viewers about um, something that really jumped out at me about your testimony when I was watching it when you were in college, and you had to calculate the, uh, the possibility of the second law of thermodynamics failing, and you compared that with your calculations that you'd made about the scientific predictions in the Bible. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was so fascinating to me. Yeah, this was about uh, 18 months through my study of the Bible. And, uh, you know, I said, okay, here's all these predictions it's making of future scientific discoveries. And I calculated the probability that the different Bible authors could get this from their own background and knowledge without being inspired by the one that created the universe. And I calculated that probability had to be more remote than one chance in 10 to the 300th power. And it was just a couple of weeks after that, that my physics professor, one of my physics professors, gave our class the assignment to calculate the probability that one of us in a class of 300 would be killed by a sudden reversal of the second law of thermodynamics. And, uh, you know, that answer is one chance in 10 to the 80th. And it's not that difficult to calculate. You can think of a huge auditorium filled with students, and that auditorium is filled with air molecules. But thermodynamics tells us that the air molecules all have different temperatures. But because of entropy, they're so thoroughly mixed, we all feel the same temperature. But there is a remote possibility that say all the air molecules in that auditorium that happen to be below the freezing point of water will all gang up on one student in the class and freeze that student to death. And basically we calculated what that probability was. It's one chance in 10 to the 80th. But the reason why the physics professor gave us that assignment is to make the point there are many things in science, especially physics, that we can establish are so remote, they're possible, but so remotely possible that it's effectively impossible. Basically, he shared with us that, you know, the possibility of that happening anywhere in the entire observable universe over the entire age of the universe is absurdly remote. And therefore, we can be confident there's never been a reversal of the second law of thermodynamics. And what I realized is You know, I literally gamble my life, every second of my life, on the reliability of the second law of thermodynamics. We all do. Yeah. And yet I had just demonstrated that the words in the Bible were 10 to the 220 times minimum more reliable than the second law of thermodynamics. So that's what persuaded me. You know, it would be irrational 
for me to put all this confidence and trust in the second law of thermodynamics and, put, and not put even more trust in the message of this Bible. Oh. And so that began a re-examination of the Bible. I mean, one reason I hesitated is that that 18-month study persuaded me. If I sign my name in the back of the Gideon Bible, I'm committing to make Jesus Christ the most important person in my life. And I'm committing to make that public because that 18-month study had been done in total secrecy. Oh. And I said, if I sign my name, this can no longer be a secret relationship. It needs to be public. People need to know that this is the most important person in my life. And so, uh, and I knew the kind of response I would get from my fellow students and professors. Uh, the University of British Columbia was not a very God-friendly place, at least in the physics department. So I was kind of anticipating some fear what I'd be up against if I went public. And so I did hesitate but finally I realized this is the truth. Even though I'm shaking in my boots, I'm going <laughs> to do this. I committed to sign my name. And uh, then I began to look for opportunities to share my faith. And uh, it was just days where I had a wonderful opportunity with my lab partner. He later became the chairman of the physics department at the University of Alberta. Um, and, you know... I was starting to talk to him after we finished a physics assignment, and he said, Hugh, I can tell that you want to talk about an important subject, but I got something I want to talk about. Uh, you know, I've been wondering about this God issue. Wow. Do you know anybody in this campus who knows anything about God? <laughs> I've opened great. up a four-hour conversation where we wow. wound up going to the library because he said, I want to see proof that the Bible actually predicts future events in human history. Oh. So he went to the library, dug up microfiches of old newspapers, went through them, and he basically said the Bible really does have predictive oh. power. Oh. Uh, he didn't become a believer. And to this day, I'm not sure he ever really committed his life to Jesus Christ, but he got on our mailing list. He told me how much he enjoyed all the articles that I write. Wow. And I talked to two of his graduate students uh, a, a couple of decades ago, and they said he really encouraged us to pursue our Christian studies. So wow. who knows? Wow, that is neat. So when when you're making these calculations and you're seeing these predictions being made in the Bible, can you can you share what some of those? Are. So for, for people who may not be looking for that kind of uh, thing in the Bible, what were some of the scientific predictions the Bible made that uh, came true that, that you were that were so persuasive for you to realize that this was this was written by and people that were inspired by the Creator? Well, probably the two that had the biggest impact on me. I mean, I went through the Bible page by page. So I started with Genesis 1. And it took me about four hours to get out of that first page because mm. I was testing every statement that was made there. Wow. And I realized, you know, that describes 10 events of creation. They're all correctly described and they're all in the correct chronological order. Wow. And I actually calculated the probability that Moses could have figured that out through his own efforts and said it had to be way more remote than one chance in 10 billion just to get the order right let alone the descriptions. Oh. So that was a big clue right there. 
of all the holy books I read, this gave the only accurate account of the events of the past history of Earth and Earth's life. Uh, the other one that had a big impact on me was, uh, you know, I told you earlier, it was Big Bang cosmology that be, uh, encouraged me to make this pursuit. And as I went through the Old Testament, I realized this book was speaking about Big Bang cosmology thousands of years before any astronomer even had a clue. I mean, I was particularly impressed that these early chapters of the Bible uh, spoke about a beginning of the universe, a beginning that included an actual beginning of space and time, 11 texts written by five different authors in the Old Testament talked about the expansion of the universe, how it expands under laws of physics that do not change, how uh, one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And again, I think my physics background had, a, had a, an advantage for me because I knew that any system, any physical system that's subject to the laws of thermodynamics, where that system expands, must get colder and colder in a way you can predict with equations. And this is when astronomers were just beginning to measure uh, the past temperature of the universe, and I realized it was a fit. Uh, today, we've got over 13 different measurements of the past temperature of the universe, and they perfectly fit the biblically predicted cooling curve, given that you know the age of the universe. Yeah. So, And it wasn't until the 20th century uh, that uh, any astronomer had a clue that we lived in an expanded universe. In fact, the only ancient books I found that spoke about an expanding universe, uh, other than the Bible, uh, were commentaries written by Jewish theologians on the very biblical texts that were talking about the expansion of the universe. Oh. One of the really cool little things I learned from one of your books was from your book on, on Job. And, and I assume that some Christians aren't aware that many scholars believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible, that it, it, it's older than any other text that we have in the, in the canon. And you note all kinds of scientific predictions that Job makes um, that later come true. And one of the ones that really stood out to me was uh, about darkness and dark matter. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, how, was, how did it used to be taught in universities what darkness actually was? And then what did Job predict that actually, uh, essentially, they ended up discovering? Well, what I was taught as an undergraduate is that darkness is simply the absence of light. Right. When you look at Job 38, verses 19 and 20, excuse me, uh, darkness is actually referred to as a substance, an actual substance. You know, can you go and actually find that dark stuff? And that today we now know that, uh, yes, darkness is the absence of light, but there's actually a significant component of the universe that we call dark matter. There's actually two different kinds of dark matter, and together they make up about 30% of the entirety of the universe. And actually, we now are able to answer that question in Job, where does that dark stuff reside? Uh, we now know where it resides. However, we still do not know the fundamental particles, uh, with the exception of a minor one that makes up that dark stuff. That's still a quest that's ongoing. Uh, but that's an example where, you know, here's Job and his friends being questioned about God, and they had to admit we're not as smart as we think we are, and uh, yet... 
here we are 40 or so centuries later, and there's still questions there we can't answer. Wow. Uh, many of them we have been able to answer since, but there's a lot we still can't answer. Well, so we, we still don't know everything, do we? <laughs> we don't. And, you know, even as a 17-year-old, I was convinced that Job had to be the oldest book. Because what I saw in the books written by Moses is that you've got the priesthood established. Right. And the priests are the ones that are sacrificing the animals. But in uh, Job, you've got the patriarchs sacrificing the animals, as was the case in the day of Abraham. And the other thing you note is it's written in poetry, almost all of it. And then you've got this appendage at the end of the book of Job in the beginning. And I was aware that uh, Hebrew did not become a written language until the 15th century uh, B.C. And so I said, okay, this is how this book was preserved. It was preserved through people memorizing it word for word and therefore having it composed in a poetic line. Because if you actually know anything about biblical Hebrew, the way Job is written is designed to be memorized word for word. And then I saw that Elihu uh, was silent for 32 chapters, and he speaks, and he's this young man. And that's often the case in cultures uh, where they don't have a written language. They'll take some intelligent young man, uh, young enough that his memory skills are really good, and his job is basically to memorize the discussion that's going on by the elders. So that's how I always interpret Elihu. Yeah. He was the one memorizing this, and he was the one realizing these are probably four of the most intelligent humans on the planet. They're here talking to one another. This is going to be a monumental di dialogue. Uh, we need to preserve it. Wow. That is fascinating. So as, you're, as a scientist with a scientific mind and you're reading through the Bible, uh, surely there had to come a point where you come across things like talking snakes and uh, things like... Jesus walking on water and healing people. You have these supernatural, miraculous events that you're going to be encountering. How did that hit you as a scientist as you're reading through it? And how did you make sense of that? Did you struggle with those types of verses? Well, when I first picked up the world's holy books, I said, you know, you can easily dismiss anything, any written text, by putting it in the worst possible interpretive light. I said, I'm not going to do that. Every holy book I pick up, I'm going to put it in the best possible interpretive light. But when I did that with the Quran or the Hindu Vedas, it was clear that even in that context, it couldn't possibly be accurate. With respect to the Bible, I took the same approach, and I realized things like the talking snake, okay, uh, I can't prove that that's an error, but boy, it sure is a problem. Uh, but I would simply put it aside and say, that's an anomaly and a problem that needs to be resolved. And uh, I just had the confidence, based on everything else I was able to resolve, that will be resolved eventually. And even now, there's parts of the Bible that are not resolved. I don't have that last eight chapters of Ezekiel figured out. There's a whole lot of anomalies there that are a puzzle. Uh, but it's just like my science. There's a lot in the dynamics of the Milky Way galaxy, for example, that I don't have figured out. No other astronomers got figured out either. But it doesn't shake our confidence in the fact that our Milky Way galaxy is real. It doesn't shake our confidence in the laws of physics. It just means my understanding is incomplete 
my knowledge base is not adequate to really figure out what's going on here. So that's the approach I took to the Bible. And with respect to the talking snake, and actually I found there was more than one example in the book of Numbers, you got a talking donkey. And I think that was impressive because when Balaam's donkey started talking, Balaam didn't see surprise. But what it tells us in the text is that Balaam had contact uh, with an angelic being. And as I went through the Bible, I realized God has given the power to angelic beings to take control over the physical bodies of human beings and animals. So I realized, okay, that's the angel talking. It's not the donkey. And Balaam seemed to recognize that right off the bat. I mean, if that happened to me, I'd be totally stunned. But the fact that he didn't even flinch when his donkey was talking told me he knew what was going on. This wasn't the donkey. This is an angelic being. Uh, the donkey was rebuking him. And he received some of the rebuke, but not all of the rebuke. Hey friends, I'm just popping in here for a second to tell you about today's sponsor. We will get right back to our conversation with Hugh Ross in just a moment. But I wanna tell you about Impact 360 Propel Experience. And so what essentially this is, is a one week student leadership training experience. And it's to equip students to impact the world coming out of their identity in Christ. And so it's designed for teens who have a desire to lead and disciple their peers. If you want more information about this summer experience, I will be there, John Stone Street will be there, Brett Kunkel will be there. You can go to impact360.org propel for more information. I also wanna tell you about Southern Evangelical Seminary. So if you've watched this YouTube channel or listened to this podcast for any period of time, you know how much I love and believe in Southern Evangelical Seminary. They were instrumental in helping helping me when I was in a crisis of faith and going through a deep time of doubt. And you know what else is in a time of crisis is the state of modern theology, especially among evangelical Christians. New studies are showing numbers like 68% of American churchgoers thinking that God accepts worship from people of all religions. Uh, 41% saying that gender is just a matter of choice. Almost 50% saying that religion is a matter of personal opinion rather than one of objective truth. I can guarantee you if you go to Southern Evangelical Seminary, they will put these misconceptions to rest and give you a solid theological foundation in which to live out your Christian faith. They have wonderful master's programs, PhD programs. You can check them out at ses.edu. So as a scientist, um, one of the things I love about your ministry and, and actually one of the things when I was going through my own doubt, a lot of my doubts had to do with some claims that were being made about evolution, uh, that evolution somehow disproves Christianity or the Bible. And what I loved about your ministry is that uh, you, you, you take the Bible literally. Now, of course, we all recognize that the Bible contains figures of speech, but you you are approaching the Genesis account as actual history. This is, am I correct in saying that? It's you're not just yes. making it an allegory or or a myth. Well, like you, I recognize there are parts of the Bible that are figures of speech, parables, and metaphors. When I look at the creation texts in the Bible, they're not written that way. And yeah. particularly, when I looked at Genesis. It's like here's Moses using three different grammatical approaches to establish that this is a real chronology. So I took it as a real chronology of historical events. Uh, but as a scientist, I was impressed. If you follow this 
scientific method, what I now refer to as the biblical testing method, everything fits. When I run into scientists who say Genesis is teaching scientific nonsense, I find that they have made a mistake on the first two steps of the scientific method. And I've been able to lead a number of scientists to Christ just through showing them this in Genesis. They said, we had no idea. And now they began to realize this book really is faithful and trustworthy in what it says about science. Wow. So as you grew in your faith and you were, you know, obviously very science-minded, what did, what did creation reveal to you about the creator? When did or how did your approach to everything, um, I don't know if you, if you would describe it as moving towards something more of an intimate relationship with God, or how did that connection from observing science move into this relationship with God and making Jesus the Lord of your life and trusting him for your salvation? How, how did that connection get made? Well, I mean, I was able to see even before I became a Christian that God was intimately uh, engaging the creation. He was intervening in miraculous ways to fulfill his purpose. And I said, if God is doing that with things that are inanimate, uh, like the mountains and the streams and the oceans, uh, wouldn't it make sense that he'd be even more intimately involved in the lives of uh life and particularly human beings and the fact that we're one wanting to seek out and says and then i read the book of acts and i looked at the book of acts it says this is a god that seems to be very eager to intervene in such a way as to assist those people that are committed to live for him and i looked at the book of acts i noticed the ending it just falls off a cliff there's no conclusion in acts 28 it just stops, which told me that maybe this is a norm. So uh, a book that my wife and I wrote uh, just a couple of years ago, Always Be Ready, makes the point that if you will commit yourself to make Jesus public in your life, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to share with other people the reasons for your hope in Jesus Christ and do so with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. Now, I got to see that early on, because when I signed my name in that back of that Gideon Bible, I realized I'm committing myself to be public about my faith. And I got to see God do things that I realized this is not ordinary. I can't chalk this up to coincidence. I mean, the fact that my lab partner was the one that interrupted me and yeah. got the conversation going. And that wasn't just once. So what I wrote in this book, Always Be Ready, is literally hundreds of examples from my own life, the life of people. I know I had other people write stories in the book, making the point, the book of Acts is not over. It's happening today. I mean, to give you one statistical example, I type a chapter in that book about how my experiences of sharing my faith on airplanes and in airports. I'll be sitting down at an airport and people start up a conversation with me. I think what's remarkable is I've been kind of keeping uh, statistics. Over half of the conversations I have where we get into a spiritual conversation about God and the Bible and the Christian faith are with people with doctoral degrees either in science or theology. And you and I both know that doesn't make up 50% 
of the U.S. Yeah. flying public. Right. Uh, so, you know, God knows my background, my educational experience, and he knows the background of people getting on the airplane. So I, I put a story there in the book, for example, of being in an airport uh, waiting for my flight. It got delayed many times, and finally they called my name. I thought, for sure, I'm going to get booted off because I had a cheap ticket. <laughs> and they just said, look, there's a family needs to sit together. We notice you're all by yourself. Can we change your seat? I said, give me any seat you want in the airplane. I was relieved. I wasn't being kicked off. And so the ticket they gave me was a first-class seat. So I sit down in first class. This gentleman sits down in first class beside me. And he says, you know, I'm not used to this. I never fly first class. And I said, well, I never fly first class either. But uh, I got bumped, and they put me in first class. And he says, well, uh, I'm consulting for Microsoft. And they insisted that I fly first class. And he says, by the way, I'm a quantum physicist. I'm from Germany. I'm an atheist. Uh, who are you? Perfect. And I said, well, I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm an astrophysicist. I'm from Canada. Uh, I'm not an atheist or a skeptic. I'm a, a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And he said, this is going to be a very interesting flight. I'm going to ask you some questions. He asked me eight questions over the course of two hours. At the end of those two hours, he said, i got to ask you one more. Why do you have such well-prepared answers to my questions? I said, well, your questions are the chapter titles in a book I wrote. And he said, I don't believe you. Well, I had a copy of why the universe is the way it is in my briefcase. And so I pulled it out of my briefcase. He looked at the table of contents and says, yeah, those are my eight questions. And those are my eight questions in order. Wow. That so as we amazing. walked the baggage claim, he said, I just calculated the probability that this conversation would have happened. He says, it's, it's got to be less than one chance in two billion. So wow. anyway, he took that copy home with him to Germany. I was also able to get him. I had a DVD in my briefcase, the only DVD I had that was in German. I was able to get him that as well. Man. Did you keep in touch with him? Do you ever know where he landed on things? Well... He wouldn't give, I gave him my email address and my business card. He wouldn't give me his. I've not heard back from him. Okay. And that's actually something I put in the book is saying, you know, I've been doing this long enough that I get to see a little bit below the tip of the iceberg. Because what happens to me is I'll be speaking somewhere and this woman or man will walk up to me and said, 25 years ago, I had this conversation with me. That conversation led me to faith in Christ. Wow. And I've been remiss in telling you this, uh, but then they told me. So I basically tell people who are Christians, if you'll be patient, you'll see some of the fruit, wow. but you're never going to see a majority. You're only going to see the tip of the iceberg. You're going to have to wait till we get to the new creation before you see all the ways God used you. Wow. And God usually works through multiple people. You know, it's just not me that takes me. And I tell that story and always be ready as well as how my journey to faith in Christ was not in a total Christian vacuum or non-Christian vacuum. Yeah. I tell a story of how my parents were shopping in downtown Vancouver. I was very young at the time and there was a street preacher uh, who was preaching to a dozen people on the sidewalk. And my parents dragged me away from this Bible nut but I heard 15 seconds. 
and at 15 seconds I didn't forget. Oh. And uh, also when I was a little bit older, uh, my dad was rebuking me, and he rebuked me with a Bible verse. And uh, when he was 80, I told him about that, and he said, I had no idea that was in the Bible. Wow. I had no idea where I heard that from. But I told him, what you told me was, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And it says, when I got into my early teens, that got me thinking, I'm eventually going to die. And maybe the pursuit I'm going on is really not the best way uh, for me to live my life. Wow. So I need to really, really consider, is this really what I need to be doing? And wow. it says, that verse never forgot. I never forgot that verse. But yeah, when I was uh, 17, I found that verse in the book of Proverbs. So anyway, I shared it with my dad a few months after he became a Christian. He became a Christian uh, quite late, in in his late 70s. Well, this is fascinating to me because when you're talking about the concept of always be ready and you just never know these kind of situations that God's going to set up. I mean, the chances of a quantum physicist sitting next to an astrophysicist in first class getting bumped up is just, that's just crazy in the natural realm. But I'm even thinking about my journey with apologetics. When I first started studying apologetics, like I mentioned before, I'm not particularly science-minded, although I did find a lot of the scientific apologetics really interesting and fascinating. But I felt really overwhelmed in the beginning. I just, for every question I would ask and investigate, it would it would spawn 10 more that would go into all sorts of different disciplines and different subjects. But I can't tell you how many times I would spend uh, a, a week or two really honing in on one thing, whether it's the cosmological argument or some uh, aspect of biblical reliability, even totally unrelated with each other. And then within a couple of weeks, somebody would ask me a question that was directly related to the very thing that I had just looked at. And I'm just thinking, what are the chances? Because you can feel overwhelmed thinking, what if somebody asks me something I can't answer? Or what if I haven't even thought about it yet or even looked at it yet? But honestly, I can't tell you how many times the actual question would be exactly what I had just read or just looked into for myself. It happened at least a dozen times without exaggeration. So I got to read that book that you and your wife wrote. Did you say it's called Always Be Ready? Always Be Ready. Let me see. Uh, This is the book right here. Awesome. And I'll I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes also so people can get their hands on that. Um, So as a scientist, as you read scripture, as you studied science, did you ever find something that you discovered in science that seemed to contradict scripture, that was at odds with scripture? And, you know, have you ever found yourself in the position of having to choose, okay, do I go with the Bible or do I go with some kind of scientific data that I've discovered? How do you reconcile Well, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to just say amen to what you said. Okay. Because I think that's how God encourages us to develop good reasons. Yes, yes. The first time you develop a good reason, God brings somebody to you almost immediately. Yes. That will respond positively to that good reason. Doesn't that motivate you to continue to study, to develop more good Absolutely. reasons? Absolutely. It does. I think that's God. I believe God does that to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, so yeah. thank you for sharing that. That Absolutely. was great. Absolutely. And uh, incidentally, people can get a free chapter of Always Be Ready oh. at reasons.org slash Ross. 
Okay, reasons.org slash Ross to get a free chapter slash Ross. Great. They can get a free chapter of any of my books. Oh, great. Great. That's good to know. But to answer your question, that happens quite frequently. Uh, It happens frequently when I study the Bible or when I study my science. I'll find something in science doesn't fit what I see in the Bible. I'll find something in the Bible doesn't fit what's in science. Uh, But I'm confident that what I see in the Bible, how God's given us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, and how God has made both of those revelations of himself utterly trustworthy and reliable. So when I see something that doesn't fit, and by the way, this happens internally, I'll see something in physics that doesn't fit what I see in zoology, or I'll see something in the book of Ruth Mm. that doesn't seem to fit what I see in the book of Romans. In both cases, what I do is say, I need to give this more in-depth study. I also need to be patient. I'm confident that these anomalies I see will get resolved, but it might take a lot more study and time than I'm prepared to devote. And again, I think that's God encouraging me. Look, don't be lazy. Dig into this. Dig into this hard and thoroughly. And when you do, you'll see a resolution. And I'm old enough or I've experienced that thousands of times. Every time I see an anomaly, if I give it sufficient depth and study, it gets resolved. But here's something interesting. Whenever I see an anomaly get resolved, it reveals several more that I wasn't even aware of. <laughs> right. But they're at a lower level of significance. I mean, I that's how we scientists test competing models. When we resolve an anomaly, uh, does it make it worse for our model or better for our model? And we resolve an anomaly and it reveals more anomalies. Are they more problematic for our model or less problematic? Are they consistently less and less problematic? That encourages me I'm on the pathway to truth. And so you know, I often get challenged by atheists to say, your belief is just the God of the gaps. I say, well, your belief is the God of the no gaps. Let's take advantage of these gaps. Mm. There always will be gaps in models. There always will be gaps in theological understanding. But let's take advantage of those gaps because God has given us a capacity to reduce the significance of those gaps. Let's see what happens when we go after the gaps, learn more, and see if we can see what's happening there. And it's what happens to the gaps that tells us whether we're on the pathway to truth or the pathway to error. If the gaps become more and more numerous as we learn more and more, bigger and bigger, and more and more problematic, we're probably on the wrong path. I mean, that's how we scientists determine whether a model is a failed model. If the problems grow and become more problematic, we know we got the wrong model. But the problems become less and less problematic, we know we're on the pathway to truth. And by the way, we'll never have a complete model. It will always be incomplete. Which means as a scientist, I never have to worry about being unemployed because we now know everything. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And likewise as a theologian, we don't, I tell my theologian friends, you don't have to be worried about being put out of work because now we understand everything the Bible's got to say. That's never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my reasons for recognizing the Bible is the Word of God. Every other holy book I picked up had the potential 
of being exhausted. Wow. Where you reach a point where you know everything could possibly have to communicate. That's not the case with the Bible. Wow. It's written in such a way that it's an inexhaustible source of truth. I mean, that's why we could have eight completely different sermons on Romans chapter 5. Because Paul wrote it in such a way, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be able to communicate multiple points with, with a single text. Oh, that's such a great point. As we close out here, um, how, how have you been able to reach, like, what are some of the testimonies you get on your website about people who have been reached with the gospel through your ministry and through the, the scientific findings that you, that you put in the, reason, the daily reasons that you give uh, for belief in, in Christ? Well, a lot of it has to do with just the fact that uh, there's two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. I mean, almost every time I speak in public, some individual come up to me, a businessman, an engineer, a scientist, a computer coder, and the individual will be just bawling, just tears pouring down. Oh. It's like for all my life, I thought I had to lead a double life. Wow. Where I had my science over here and my Christian faith over here and just realized I could never bring the two together. But he said that always stopped me. And they just told me how you know, I couldn't share my Christian faith because I was living a contradictory life. And now I realize it all fits together. And you just set me free uh, wow. to be able to share my faith with other people. So wow. that's wow. probably the most common testimony I get yeah. is that. But it also tells me, you know, how is it that people have this idea that the two books are at loggerheads of yeah. one another? And yeah. I think we're living in a time and an age uh, where you got scientists who were convinced that the Bible's got the science utterly wrong, and you got Christians who were convinced that the science has got it utterly wrong. And you know, I was years ago at a conference at UC Berkeley, and they invited. Uh, 20 theologians and 20 scientists to dialogue with one another. And I remember the moderators struggling because uh, they were afraid to talk to one another. The reason why the theologians had no background in science and the scientists there had no background in theology. I was the only one there who had a foot in both camps. Wow. And finally the moderator, just, you know, he had all of us share our stories. And he basically says, Hugh, can you please get the conversation uh, started. So, wow. You know, in the 21st century, our education is highly specialized. Yeah, that's true. And I run into a lot of scientists, for example, who seem to have this idea that naturalistic evolution explains the whole story, but they're doing it from a narrow subdiscipline. Mm. So I'll run into a geneticist that says, Yeah, we got it all figured out. And then I talk to him about the paleontology, and he says, I wasn't aware of that, but I talked to the paleontologists. They're not aware of what's going on in genetics mm. or population uh, field experiments or what's going on with the faint sun paradox. I spoke on that a couple of weeks ago to a lay audience saying, you know, what evolutionary biologists really haven't taken into account is that the ch over the history of life on planet Earth, the physics of the sun, the earth, and the moon changes being trained in the life sciences, they seem to think that physics is constant, mm. but it's not. The sun is 23% brighter today than it was 3.8 billion years ago when God first created life. 
and light can only tolerate a 1% change. But you see this very interesting statement in Psalm 104. It's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. And when you look at the fossil record in detail, what you notice is we have these mass extinction events where life is removed from the planet from 50 to 95% and very quickly replaced by a whole new set of species of life. But the new species are more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So here we got the sun getting brighter and brighter because of its changing physics. But we got the creator stepping in, replacing life step by step in such a way that the greenhouse gas efficiency drops at just the right level to compensate for the brightening of the sun. And my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun, the earth, and the moon will know which light to remove and which new light to replace, where that light needs to be on the earth, how what the population level must be, Mm. and how the ecological relationships should integrate. And I've actually run an evolutionary biologist now who are basically stunned by the fact each mass speciation event, the ecological relationships are immediately optimized. What I mean by that is the predator-prey and parasite relationships are optimized right away. From a naturalistic perspective, you would expect that it would take tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years. Uh, for them to become optimized. But there's no delay. They're optimized right away. What do they so, make of it when, they, when they're when they stunned? and Because and, that would seem, I mean, again, I'm not a science person, but that would seem to refute the Darwinian idea of this unguided process. What do they make of that when they're expressing their astonishment at that, at that evidence? Well, one story I tell and always be ready uh, is being at this Origin of Life Research Conference and all these original life researchers were having dinner and lunch and breakfast with them. A lot of time was devoted for open discussion. And we were the only two Christians there, Fuzzrod and myself, from reasons to believe. And they would say, well, I mean, we're atheists. We're scientists, after all. Uh, we're atheists. But when they recognized we were scientists, too, and their first reaction was, well, you can't be good scientists. But when they realized the work that we had done, the books that we had written, they said, okay, you guys have actually studied this in more depth than we have and done an interdisciplinary matter. And so they freely admitted to us that they were default atheists, that they had never really thought about the subject because we'd asked them questions over dinner. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're going to die someday? No, Uh, never spent any time thinking about that. Uh, have you ever thought about there might be purpose in the universe? No, I just have fun studying the universe. And when I realized as we were talking to these very brilliant, highly educated scientists that were addicted to their science. Um. Like one of them said, you know, my science research is like a video game. I am so addicted to it, I do nothing else but study it. Oh. And he basically admitted, I never give any time to the most important issues of life. And what I noticed what happened is that we had this world-famous physicist from MIT walk back to the dorm with us, talking about these issues of science and faith and the Bible and Christianity. 
and she said she'd been an atheist all of her life. Then we got to the elevator. She pushed that elevator door open for another 15 minutes to carry on the conversation. And so what I realized, there's a lot of people out there, not just scientists, who've never had the opportunity to have a serious conversation about spiritual matters with a Christian who's prepared to treat them as an equal and with gentleness and respect and compassion. And if you do that, you will get amazing opportunities. And so that last little part of 1 Peter 3.15 is crucial. Uh, That's a crucial ingredient in order to enable these conversations to happen. So don't write these people off if, say, they're atheists and skeptics. They could be some of the most receptive people on the planet. Wow. Well, you are such a beautiful example of uh, giving great reasons with gentleness and respect. And for anyone watching or listening, if you want to know more, if you've got science-minded people in your life that have written off the Christian faith or written off the existence of God, who you think might be open to looking at some reasons, send them to reasons.org. That's uh, Dr. Ross's ministry, where they release new reasons all the time based on the current scientific uh, evidences that are coming about. And so I can't recommend that highly enough get one of his books. Of course, I'm partial to the Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job book, which I loved so much that came at such an important time in my life. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for coming on today. This was just such such a thrill for me and such an honor. Well, it's an honor for me to be with you. And thank you for your insights. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed listening to or watching this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on YouTube or iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash alisachilders and take a look at some of the ways that you can come alongside us financially and with your prayers to help get the message out to more people. Have a great week. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.